The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. We begin today with a quote. So long as there shall exist, by virtue of law and custom, decrees of damnation pronounced by society, artificially creating hells amid the civilization of earth, and adding the element of human fate to divine destiny, so long as the three great problems of the century, the degradation of man through pauperism, the corruption of woman through hunger, the crippling of children through lack of light, are unsolved, so long as social asphyxia is possible in any part of the world, in other words, and with a still wider significance, so long as ignorance and poverty exist on earth, books of the nature of Les Miserables cannot fail to be of use. End quote. That's the preface to Les Miserables, generally regarded as one of the greatest novels of the 19th century, which itself is generally regarded as one of, if not the, greatest centuries for novels. The author is Victor Hugo, a man of enormous appetites and energies, and of course, enormous literary gifts. We explore his life and works and legacy today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm glad to be with you today. I am Jack Wilson doing my best. Victor Hugo today. What a mountain of a man, an absolute mountain. Speaking of which, the mountain, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. A mountain figures into the story here, which we'll get into. This guy, <laughs> man, what an incredible life and an absolute passion for literature. That's one of the nice benefits for me as someone who loves literature as much as I do. When you encounter a writer who's absolutely gaga for literature, not just as a way to make money or a way to, uh, sorry, a way to express himself or herself or that kind of thing, but someone who looks back at the history of the world, let's say, and kind of thinks that the best way to understand it is through literature and looks at the future and thinks the best way to solve humans' problems are through Literature, I am partial to that view, and, and Victor Hugo had it. He believes in literature, along with lots of other things like passions and appetites and rectifying injustices and celebrating humanity. He was a titan on earth. Okay, first, let's get back to our little world tour of gratitude, which... For those of you just tuning in, is the these are the thank yous that we're extending to countries around the world where we have hit number one on the books podcast charts, according to the good folks at Chartable and Apple. Good folks and good algorithms, I guess. Do you remember that woman whose name was Dot Com? She was interviewed a bunch in the 90s, how her life had changed. Well, I wonder if there's an L. Gorhythm. He probably goes by Alan or Alfred now, I suppose. Moving on, our nation of the day is Estonia. 
Yes, it's our second country in a row that borders Russia. We'll see how many of the 14 nations have made it on our list. We're sort of penciling those in. So far, I think we've had four. Norway, Finland, Lithuania, and now Estonia. Estonia has a fine literary tradition, even though, as is the case with many smaller countries who are in the thick of things, centrally located, surrounded by powers, they have often been overrun by their neighbors, politically and culturally. Sweden, Germany, and Russia have all had their day of dominance in Estonia. But Estonian, the language and the literary culture, has survived nevertheless, with some rich traditions in folklore— and their contemporary literature includes some very fine novels and poetry. And in the 19th century, Juhan Liev was one of Estonia's finest and most famous poets. For the past 50 or so years, they've given out the Juhan Liev Prize for Poetry, and the winner is given a leather shepherd's bag handmade by a local artist. What a nice gift, and what a nice country. Thank you, Estonia for appreciating literature, and for helping to make the History of Literature podcast the number one books podcast in your country. And all our hopes and best wishes are with you during this period of global turmoil. Please stay safe. Victor Hugo. It would have been nice to have France as our number one this episode, but we shall have to wait. We've got some work to do there. We peaked it. Number 13. Ouch. Not even in the top 10. Maybe we need to do a French month or something. Although, <laughs> now that I think about it, that might drive our numbers down. <laughs> uh, I'm sure they would be uh, disappointed, let's say, with what we come up with. Anyway, we still haven't really covered Flaubert's life, although our Madame Bovary episode, which was kind of more about my life, it's the one where I told the story about my trip to Tibet. That's been very popular. But who cares about Jack Wilson? Not me. Certainly. Not when there's a prose monk like Gustave Flaubert waiting to have his story told. We'll have to put that on the list. But first, Victor Hugo. Flaubert knew Victor Hugo. Hugo astonished him. They were about 20 years apart. Hugo was older, but they were friends. Flaubert defended Hugo's literary reputation at times, although he didn't love all of Hugo's books. He admired his passion for eating. He said, Hugo is a force of nature. He might also have been talking about Hugo's insatiable energy and writing. Flaubert was someone who agonized over his prose. He was a very slow writer with paragraphs and sentences and individual words taking a great deal of time sort of writer who'd consider himself lucky if he finished a paragraph in a morning. Hugo, meanwhile, would wake up and write either 100 lines of poetry or 20 pages of prose. You can get quite prolific that way from a publishing standpoint, especially if you live as long as Hugo did. Hugo was a romantic writer, and comparing him with the great six romantic poets in English is instructive, helps us orient ourselves, Blake, Wordsworth, Coleridge, Byron, Shelley, and Keats. Their lives stretched from the mid-18th century to the early 19th. All six 
are born in the 18th century, Hugo comes a little later. Romanticism, the Romantic movement, is up and running when he comes along. He was born in 1802. So to compare him with those six poets, Hugo would have been the youngest, being born 45 years after Blake and seven years after young Keats. But he would outlive all of them by quite a bit. He lived from 1802 to 1885, Keats and Shelley and Byron and Blake all died in the 1820s, 60 years before Hugo, and none of the six lived past 1850. Wordsworth lived to be pretty old, but he died in 1850. Hugo was in his 80s when he died. There were already streets named after him by then. In fact, the street he himself lived on had been changed to Avenue Victor Hugo. People used to write him letters that said, To Mr. Hugo on his avenue. Not a bad trick. Well, maybe that's easy enough to pull that off in some one-horse town. But this was Paris. Avenue Victor Hugo ends at the Arc de Triomphe. There's now a metro stop there named after him. This was world-class celebrity. But we're jumping around a bit, aren't we? And we really need to talk about Victor Hugo's parents and childhood and youth. So let's do that after the break. But first, let me wrap up this bit with the English Romantic poets. I mentioned those six for a few, a couple of reasons. First, because I wanted to emphasize that although Victor Hugo is often associated with Romanticism, it was the Romanticism in full flower. The themes were already there. They weren't being forged by Victor Hugo. They were being admired and adopted. And second, much of the English Romantic movement is concerned with revolution. Wordsworth witnessed the French Revolution, and it changed him. He was in his late teens when it happened. Byron and Shelley and Keats were all born either just before or just after the French Revolution, and it was in the air. But, of course, it was also happening in another country. question was, is it going to spread here? What does this mean for our king? Victor Hugo was born in the aftermath of the French Revolution, but he was right there, right in the thick of it. His parents had lived through it and were prominent in it and against it. This was not abstract or academic. Their positions were formative and ongoing. The French Revolution and the Napoleonic era, and then the vicissitudes of France, and the Republic and the Empire, and later the return of the monarchy. This was all part of Victor Hugo's life and times. It was the oxygen he breathed. And his response to it, which changed a bit over time, was what helped to make him a revered national figure, a politician, and a world-renowned author. So, let's back up to the first days of the 19th century, not just to the birth, but the conception of Victor Hugo, which was important to him. Slightly unusual, but he was not a usual sort of person. We'll start the Victor Hugo story proper after this.
grown-ups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Victor Hugo's parents were in a sort of Montague and Capulet kind of match. They were two strong opposing forces who nevertheless fell for one another. We never got to see what happened to Romeo and Juliet, of course. They died before they could have children and get married and travel through life together. But we see what happened to Leopold Hugo and Sophie Trebuchet, Victor's parents. And we can see that love might conquer all, but maybe that's only temporary. Maybe that's a battle in the war still wages. Politics and religion will get their turn at the plate, too. Victor's father, Leopold, grew up as an army brat, with his father serving in the king's army. Leopold followed his four older brothers into the army at age 14, which was in 1787, just two years before the revolution broke out. He stayed in the military and served under the new regime, leading a battalion in the Army of the Rhine, which was formed in an attempt to liberate German states along the Rhine River. After rising through the ranks, and as France tilted from republic toward eventual empire under Napoleon, he started working for Napoleon's brother Joseph, who had been named the King of Naples. Leopold captured and executed the legendary Fra Diavolo in Naples, a leader of the resistance to France. Fra Diavolo was his nickname. It means brother devil. Fra Diavolo's name was actually Michele Pezza, and he's now famous via his nickname as a spicy sauce, from pizza to pizza in one easy step. Joseph Bonaparte was so pleased with Leopold Hugo for this and other accomplishments, he eventually made him a general. Although Leopold was demoted at one point by Napoleon after a retreat, Leopold Hugo served Napoleon more or less until his abdication. A long and industrious career from the revolution at age 16 to abdication when he was in his early 40s. And yet, 
Early in this career, he met and fell in love with a woman named Sophie Trebuchet, who was in her 20s. He was a little older. She was the daughter of a ship captain. She was a staunch royalist. During a revolutionary riot in 1789, she had seen a woman whom she knew who was executed along with her two daughters, and Sophie never forgot the sight or the terror it provoked. She was also a painter. Victor Hugo, in fact, was himself a dynamo of an artist, which we'll cover a little bit more later. We have to get to his conception first. We have to have his parents meet. Sophie met and fell in love with the dashing soldier Joseph Leopold Sigisbert Hugo, and they got married in Paris. They had two boys in the next two years, Victor's older brothers. Already there were cracks in the marriage, as Sophie wanted to live near home, and Leopold was traveling, traveling around from posting to posting as he rose through the ranks in the military. This would constitute Victor's childhood. He traveled from place to place as his father was stationed and restationed in various spots, and sometimes they didn't live with him. He lived with his mother and his brothers, and they were not in the same household as Leopold. Marriage was not going so well. Sophie was also close to a man named Victor Fanu de Lahori, who was secretly a conspirator against Napoleon. Sophie and Lahori were lovers, and in uh, kind of a dangerous game Sophie was playing. Married to a general in Napoleon's army and falling into bed with the man who was trying to bring him down with secret plots. Lahore was Victor's godfather and has been rumored to have been Victor's biological father. But before you feel sorry for Leopold, the cuckold, you should know that he was busy having affairs in Naples as well. This was a marriage on the rocks. Speaking of Leopold, if there were rumors that he was not Victor's father, he does not seem to have heard them or he doesn't seem to have believed them. Years later, when Victor Hugo was rising in prestige as a poet and playwright and author, Leopold sent... Victor, a letter describing the moment of his conception. You were conceived on a mountaintop peak, said Leopold to his son, Victor. Your mother and I were crossing the mountains in eastern France near Germany and adding, quote, This elevated origin seems to have had effects on you so that your muse is now continually sublime. End quote. Kind of a nice thing for a father to say to a son, I suppose. (laughs) <laughs> a little strange. The date of that conception in Victor's mind was June 24th, 1801. In European numbering, that's 24601. If you recognize the number 24601, the number, it's the number given to Les Mis hero Jean Valjean when he's in prison. That's no accident. Who am I? 24601. Sort of a good luck charm number for Hugo. So Victor Hugo, his parents were living a dramatic life as his father was traveling around Europe in a whirlwind in and out of famous battles, advancing the Napoleonic cause, and even leading a big portion of that as a general in the Napoleonic army. His mother, meanwhile, the unshakable royalist, secretly was secretly helping her secret lover who was trying to overthrow Napoleon. She took her children to stay in an old convent at one point where her lover was hiding out in the chapel. 
which was supposed to be unknown to the children, but they figured it out quickly. To help with his disguise, Lahori posed as their father for a period of time. Incredible stuff. Meanwhile, Leopold sued for divorce. But Sophie went to Joseph Bonaparte, asked for help, asked him to intervene. Of all people, of all people to ask, she pled her case, which actually worked. Leopold dropped the lawsuit for divorce, but then he learned of her lover. Things were not going well, and they didn't end well for the lover. The lover was Lahuri, was supposed to become minister of police after Napoleon was overthrown. Instead, the conspiracy was exposed. He was imprisoned and then shot on the plains along with his fellow conspirators. The grieving Sophie trailed behind the funeral convoy. Victor was 11 when this happened. His mother was ruined now, and she got custody of the kids who were teenagers. Even though she was broke, she tried to help Victor with his poetry. She had discovered he had gifts, and she encouraged them. Meanwhile, she worked on her own art, her painting, and Victor was also excellent at that all of his life, at drawing and painting. He left behind something like 4,000 artworks, some of which are quite astonishing. He was not only gifted visually and had a, an eye and a hand that could do this, he had a kind of relationship with paper and ink and paint and charcoal that gives his art a fascinating, I would say, ahead-of-their-time Quality. He would fold the paper or, or canvas and blot things and let the ink bleed through. He would crinkle it up to get the effect he wanted. He would grab coffee grounds or burnt matchsticks and add them to the mix. Sometimes he closed his eyes and drew with his subconscious, trying to tap into a deeper and more pure or primitive state. This was decades before Freud came along. Some of the results look abstract. Sometimes it doubles the drawings or creates a kind of texture that looks dramatic in a rough-hewn way. He could be exquisite, too, a master of line and shadow and light. I think he had some genius as an artist, as a visual artist, and might be well-known as a painter or a, a draftsman, had his literary accomplishments not overshadowed the rest of his output. His other legacy from his mother was a royalist outlook. One can imagine how that took hold. His life was chaotic, his childhood life, and what might seem romantic to a teenager or someone in his 20s might to a child of five or six just seem like deprivation. Where was his father in the war? Gone. Why do we have to leave again, Mom? The war. And by the way, young Victor, everything would be better if the royal family were in charge again. Better for us, better for the nation, more stability. And the love of my life was just executed for the cause. I'm weeping. You can imagine how great the pressure was on him to bend in the royalist direction. And he was a committed royalist when he was young. And he was also a romantic, capital R. The two were not mutually exclusive. You could believe in the Romantic movement, with its emphasis on passionate responses to nature and individualism, and believe in monarchical government, too. His hero was Chateaubriand, 
a romantic poet and essayist who had descended from an old aristocratic family and who strongly defended king and church. Even Republicans and revolutionaries like Byron and Stendhal admired Chateaubriand's writing and spirit. Hugo idolized him. I will be Chateaubriand or nothing at all, he wrote in his notebook. But although Hugo was a youthful royalist, he was a humanist by disposition, and he soon became devoted to Republican causes. The decisive break came when he wrote the play Cromwell when he was 25. By now, his mother had passed away, his father had married his mistress, the Englishwoman Catherine Thomas, and Hugo had won prizes for his poetry. Actually, one of his poems, one of his early efforts, only got an honorable mention as the judges refused to believe that it had been authored by someone who was only 15. Victor Hugo was already showing his prodigious gifts and also the prolific output that would characterize his life. He was married uh, also, by the way, I kind of jumped over that, having secretly become engaged to his childhood friend Adele, whom he married after his mother's death. He and his brothers started publishing a literary magazine, and he started cranking out works. Hans from Iceland was his first novel. He published five volumes of poetry in ten years, from age 20 to age 30 or so. He wrote several novels during this decade, including a short novel, The Last Day of a Condemned Man, which recorded the thoughts of a man on death row and came out of Hugo's abhorrence of the death penalty. The death penalty and slavery were two causes that Hugo was extremely passionate about. He wanted to end them both. Social injustice of all kinds would become very important to him and would work their way into his works. The Last Day of a Condemned Man was admired by writers like Camus and Dostoevsky. The book also has a character with a backstory like Jean Valjean, a man in prison for stealing a loaf of bread to save his sister's family. Like his mother before him, Hugo had witnessed a guillotine and executioners, and he found the practice barbaric. The practice, but also the use of it as a spectacle. The mob mentality surrounding it, people going to witness it as entertainment. To receive the praise of Dostoevsky, who himself had been condemned to death and was headed to a mock execution before being reprieved the last moment, is a testament to Hugo's empathic powers. And Dostoevsky credited him with the idea of recording a person's thoughts at the moment of crisis or distress, which Dostoevsky called a fantastic idea for fiction. He himself would later use it to great effect in novels like The Idiot and, of course, Crime and Punishment. The Last Day of a Condemned Man is an astonishing little book, very readable even today. It's a series of short chapters some of them very short, with snatches of thoughts, recollections, ideas, descriptions of the prisoner's cell and condition, and ideas about what is to come. The first chapter, or paper as it's called, goes like this. This is The Last Day of a Condemned Man by Victor Hugo. Paper 1. Condemned to Death these five weeks have I dwelt with this idea, always alone with it, always frozen by its presence, always bent under its weight. Formerly, 
for it seems to me, rather years than weeks since I was free, I was a being like any other. Every day, every hour, every minute had its idea. My mind, youthful and rich, was full of fancies, which had developed successively without order or aim, but weaving inexhaustible arabesques on the poor and coarse web of life. Sometimes it was of youthful beauties, sometimes of unbounded possessions, then of battles gained, next of theaters full of sound and light, and then again the young beauties and shadowy walks at night beneath spreading chestnut trees. There was a perpetual revel in my imagination. I might think on what I chose. I was free. But now I am a captive, bodily in irons in a dungeon, and mentally imprisoned in one idea, one horrible, one hideous, one unconquerable idea. I have only one thought, one conviction, one certitude. Condemned to death. Whatever I do, that frightful thought is always here, like a specter beside me, solitary and jealous, banishing all else, haunting me forever, and shaking me with its two icy hands whenever I wish to turn my head away or to close my eyes. It glides into all forms in which my mind seeks to shun it, mixes itself like a horrible chant with all the words which are addressed to me, presses against me even to the odious gratings of my prison. It haunts me while awake, spies on my convulsive slumbers, and reappears a vivid incubus in my dreams. I have just started from a troubled sleep in which I was pursued by this thought, and I made an effort to say to myself, Oh, it was but a dream. Well, even before my heavy eyes could read the fatal truth in the dreadful reality which surrounds me, on the damp and reeking dungeon walls, in the pale rays of my night lamp, in the rough material of my prison garb, on the somber visage of the sentry, whose cap gleams through the grating of the door, it seems to me that already a voice has murmured in my ear, Condemned to death. That's the first chapter, first paper. And then so you can get a taste of how this runs, here's the start of the second, second paper. Five weeks have now elapsed since I was tried, found guilty, sentenced. Let me endeavor to recall the circumstances which attended that fatal day. It was a beautiful morning at the close of August. My trial had already lasted three days. My name and accusation had collected each morning a knot of spectators who crowded the benches of the court as ravens surrounded a corpse. During three days, all the assembly of judges, witnesses, lawyers, and officers had passed and repassed as a phantasmagoria before my troubled vision. The two first nights, through uneasiness and terror, I had been unable to sleep. On the third, I had slept from fatigue and exhaustion. I had left the jury deliberating at midnight, and was taken back to the heap of straw in my prison, where I instantly fell into a profound sleep, the sleep of forgetfulness. These were the first hours of repose I had obtained after long watchfulness. I was buried in this oblivion when they sent to have me awakened, 
and my sound slumber was not broken by the heavy step and iron shoes of the jailer, by the clanking of his keys, or the rusty grating of the lock to rouse me from my lethargy. It required his harsh voice in my ear, his rough hand on my arm. Come, shouted he, rise directly. It continues in that vein. In 45 little chapters like this, I've given you the first one and a half, Hugo sets forth a world created in the mind of this prisoner who is condemned to death. It looks back, it looks forward, he tries to understand, he wrestles with fear and a kind of self-awareness that feels very modern to me. At one point, he thinks there's some kind of party or celebration going on, and the guard tells him that it's because the galley slaves are headed out. The guard says, do you want to watch? It would amuse you. The prisoner doesn't think he can turn down the chance. He's so starved for seeing anything other than the walls of his cell. So he goes and watches from a window as prisoners in chains are dragged out into the courtyard surrounded by spectators who are watching from the prison windows and applauding and cheering. The galley slaves or future galley slaves are allowed to dance and sing during this moment of transition and the condemned man feels moved by this spectacle. His heart reaches out to them as they temporarily display their humanity in spite of their awful fate, and he starts to weep out of pity. He forgets his own miseries. And then they suddenly look up at him in his window, and they see him, and they start pointing at him and shouting, There he is, the condemned, the condemned. That's the condemned man. And the whole crowd is excited to see him. All of the windows, all of the faces in the windows turn toward him. Some of them are mocking him and others envy him that he gets to die and avoid a life in prison. He feels this horror of recognition. He's been observing them, part of an anonymous crowd, but suddenly he's their object of fascination. He stands apart. He's the one who will die within days. He has a special status. Goodbye, comrade, they shout. Goodbye, It's really an unforgettable scene and a a mark of Hugo's powerful imagination and deep-rooted sense of humanity in the face of extreme injustice, especially when it's doled out at the hands of powerful forces like the courts or the state. It's no wonder that Hugo was revered by the masses. He was the son of a count. Leopold had been named a count by his old boss, the king of Spain, Joseph Bonaparte, and they were descended from... Victor was descended, therefore, from generals and wealthy families on both sides. But this book reads like the work of an underdog, which is where his heart was. He was not exactly living like an underdog, though. As his literary fame grew, so did the tales of his exploits. Somewhat debauched. I'm not sure how much of this is true, but according to the legends... He was, Victor Hugo was one of the 19th century's great Lotharios. He later claimed that he and Adele had sex nine times on their wedding night. Maybe that was an exaggeration. He also kind of puffed up the story of his own conception, relocating the, the moment, the fateful moment to Mont Blanc, which is a more famous mountain. And he said that it was, it took place in a Roman temple of love which wasn't true. It was actually a Celtic sanctuary. 
Today, there's a monument there to mark the occasion. I'm not sure how many monuments to literary sex there are of the locations. I mean, explicit plaques or I guess maybe columns might be more appropriate. I For Hugo's, I'm getting into uncharted territory here, people. I guess for Hugo's moment of conception, there's an engraved block of sandstone marking the spot. Here's where his parents did it. Pretty rare, I would say. I'm not sure why it's so rare. Is it our prudishness that prevents us from marking moments and locations like this? I'll tell you, I've never been to a monument to literary sex, I don't think, and I've probably been to a hundred author graves. And yet I've never been to a single author conception site, even though in general I'm a bigger fan of sex than death. Who isn't? Poor sex, always overlooked. (laughs) Just kidding, of course. Uh, Overlooked. I've worked like a dog for six years to get to five million downloads with this podcast, and some joker probably gets that many views in, in six minutes on some porn site. But anyway, will that site tell you the rest of the story of Victor Hugo's writing career, including The Hunchback of Notre Dame and Les Miserables? I doubt it. But before we take our last break and get to those, maybe I should tell you a few more of Hugo's oddities, since we were kind of on that topic, or at least one more, since it sort of fits in with all this discussion of literary sex and pornography. There's a story that Victor Hugo wrote while naked. It's a nice idea, the great humanist writer stripping bare and writing in nothing but his humanity. But I think that was actually based on some misreadings of a letter he wrote. He mentioned that he was so devoted to writing The Hunchback of Notre Dame that he wanted to remove the temptations. His biggest temptation was to leave the house and go out on the town to parties and operas and whatnot. So to keep himself tied to his chair, so to speak, he took off his nice garments, wrapped himself in an old wool shawl, and got to work. The idea was not to be naked and unencumbered, but to sort of encumber himself in a way, like those guys I knew in college who would put their alarm clock on a high shelf in their closet so they couldn't just hit the snooze button in the morning. Hugo was like Odysseus, lashing himself to the mast. For him, it was the big wool shawl that would make it a step harder to escape to Parisian life. Because guess what? When I said parties and operas and whatnot... The whatnot there kind of stands for brothels. Hugo, by some reports, was a great infuser of capital into the brothel industry. When Hugo died, the brothels closed for a day out of loving respect for their greatest patron. And one of the Goncourt brothers claimed that a policeman told him that the prostitutes draped their genitals in black crepe out of respect for the departed. On firmer factual ground are Hugo's other great passions for eating and and enjoying fine dinners. He loved to have parties of 20 guests or more, and he would eat oranges whole, some said, although some others say these were cut in quarters and dipped in wine. And some say that he ate the peels as well as a kind of party trick, or just because... Just because he was hungry, he also was reported to have eaten lobsters in the shell. It's hard to believe. But we do know that he loved to eat meat, enormous 
pieces of roast meat that he wrote about in his letters. And when there was a, a siege of Paris and meat became in short supply, he went and tried what some other Parisians were eating. I don't have a record that he ever tried rat salami, which apparently was on some menus, but he did try horse. And when this, he said it didn't agree with him, but he ate it. And when the city's zoo helped out with the siege by donating animals to the cause, Hugo sampled some more unusual animals, exotic animals, animals not normally eaten in Paris, stag, bear, antelopes, and elephant. Okay, enough of these rumors. Maybe we'll have a few more juicy tidbits, no pun intended, as we complete our look at Victor Hugo. But we need to move into his most famous works and discuss his mature years and his legacy. We'll have all that after this. We left off with Victor Hugo in his late 20s, already an accomplished and notable poet, setting down his literary mark with the sensational last day of a condemned man. He added an essay after that work, attached it to it to make it known he was explicitly calling for the end of the death penalty. He also began planning his major novel, eventually Les Miserables, soon after that. In the meantime, he was having most of his success with his plays, including one based on the life of Cromwell that I mentioned earlier, which made his decisive break with the royalist cause and started his life in politics. He wrote a preface to the published version of Cromwell in which he compared the play to Christ, naked and friendless. He seems to have been irritated that the work was somewhat ignored by the censors and the taste-making literary critics. As it turns out, the preface ended up becoming more famous than the play, as it sets out no less than his view of the history of civilization and his view of poetry as it makes its way through the various stages of human development. He viewed the world as having occurred in three stages, primitive, ancient, and modern. For him, Primitive was roughly the same as hymns. Ancient was governed by epics and tragedies. And modern, from a poetic sense, was a Christian world that yoked together tragedy and comedy. It was at once his philosophy of history, his philosophy of humanity, and his agenda as an artist. It's an impressive and heady document. He produced several of these in his life. Another was his essay on Shakespeare. Hugo loved Shakespeare. By the way, he viewed Shakespeare as sort of the pinnacle of art in the modern period. And in that essay on Shakespeare, he runs through his favorite authors and gives a kind of prose poem description of about 20 canonical authors. But let's stick to the Cromwell preface. I'll give you a taste of it. Here's how he describes 
the role of poetry in the primitive age. I'm going to read this because I think it gives you a sense of Hugo's thinking, not just about life, not just about humans, but the way he fused together literature, art, and humanity in his mind. Quote, Behold then three great successive orders of things in civilization, from its origin down to our days. Now, as poetry is always superposed upon society, we propose to try to demonstrate, from the form of its society, what the character of the poetry must have been in those three great ages of the world, primitive times, ancient times, modern times. In primitive times, when man awakes in a world that is newly created, poetry awakes with him. In the face of the marvelous things that dazzle and intoxicate him, his first speech is a hymn, simply. He is still so close to God that all his meditations are ecstatic, all his dreams are visions. His bosom swells, he sings as he breathes. His lyre has but three strings, God, the soul, creation. But this threefold mystery envelops everything. This threefold idea embraces everything. The earth is still almost deserted. There are families, but no nations, patriarchs, but no kings. Each race exists at its own pleasure. No property, no laws, no contentions, no wars. Everything belongs to each and to all. Society is a community. Man is restrained in naught. He leads that nomadic pastoral life with which all civilizations begin and which is so well adapted to solitary contemplation, to fanciful reverie. He follows every suggestion. He goes hither and thither at random. His thought, like his life, resembles a cloud that changes its shape and its direction according to the wind that drives it. Such is the first man. Such is the first poet. He is young. He is cynical. Prayer is his sole religion. The ode is his only form of poetry. This ode, this poem of primitive times, is Genesis. End quote. Roughly speaking, Hugo then views the world as developing into tribes and nations rising and crowding one another, jostling together, and epic poetry and war are the result from a poetic standpoint. Tragedy grows out of that. Christ then puts humanity on a different trajectory for the third phase, with a new light being shown on man's relationship to God and man's understanding of himself. For Hugo, it's an age of melancholy and meditation and an age where man has a new conception of himself as having a body and a soul. This becomes important because the body provides what he calls the grotesque or the comedic side of man. I would imagine all of Hugo's own appetites, his eating and his love for sex, is what helped him develop this view. His body was mundane, uh, uncontrolled, even a figure of fun, slapstick, the source of weakness, which you could either hate or you could also respect and love. It's part of being human, after all. You can be idealistic and artistic and revere that side of the human animal with a spirit that aspires toward greatness. And you can also be the kind of guy who loves wine, women, and song, which is another side of the human animal 
less close to God, maybe, but still essential and important. And then there's a side that's in between. Hugo doesn't talk about this in these terms exactly in the preface to the play Cromwell, but we know from the example of his life. That's the side that rails against injustice and believes that people should not go hungry and should not live in chains and should not be ill-treated. It's why I gave the quote I did at the very beginning of the episode. It's Hugo at his best and also his most Hugo-like. We need to help men, women, and children who are kept in poverty, in squalor, in misery, in hunger, who are asked to debase themselves, who are not given a chance, who are mistreated by the world through no fault of their own, who are humble sinners and who deserve the kind of treatment that Christ would have given them. These are the themes that run through Hugo's personal life. He hated poverty and slavery and capital punishment. He was a politician with a sort of idealized Napoleon at the center of his thinking much of the time. But by the time Napoleon III rose to power, he had moved to the left, Hugo had, countering a growing authoritarian bent. More importantly for us, from a literature perspective, these are also the themes that run through Hugo's literary works and give them their power. He was a master of technical form, in poetry, and his prose is inherently readable, if occasionally digressive by our standards. Their lasting power, though, comes from their deep and abiding humanity. They are infused with Hugo's empathic spirit and desire to help the afflicted. His fame as a novelist increased with the publication of what he called Notre Dame of Paris, Notre Dame of Paris, I guess, or Paris. <laughs> <laughs> the translation that we have in English is known as The Hunchback of Notre Dame. The book was a sensation. It changed the way Parisians viewed architecture, helping to usher in a revived appreciation for pre-Renaissance buildings and art, a return to medieval Christian glory. Perhaps more of the laughter and tears side of Hugo, light as well as shadow. This is what human beings are. And the plot is even more in this vein. In the 15th century, a deformed bell ringer named Quasimodo falls in love with a gypsy dancer, Esmeralda. Misery is heaped on the two of them, primarily by a soldier and an archdeacon. The book redefines what it means to be a monster. Quasimodo is treated as such, and so is Esmeralda. One, because of his physical deformity, and the other because of the circumstances of her birth. And yet, these two outsiders are the heroes, and the main monstrosity is the way they're treated by the pillars of society. It's the scarlet letter crossed with Frankenstein and set in a shadowy church and a dark-hearted society. It's an amazing book, and Hugo, who was already famous in literary Paris, was now famous on a world stage. He began working on the book that would cement him in the pantheon of world-famous novelists, up there with Dickens and Tolstoy, Les Miserables, translated as the miserable ones, or the wretched, or the outcasts, or the afflicted. But really, in English, we just keep it as Les Miserables. It's a little odd that Hugo had this relationship with translated titles, I guess. Les Miserables might be the greatest work in another language, that retains its title in English editions. The only thing I can think of that could rival it, maybe, is Dante's Inferno. And 
the Hunchback of Notre Dame is in that category where the translators do not think a literal translation is enough. Notre Dame of Paris sounds like a tourist guide. The Hunchback of Notre Dame sounds like a cracking good story. And Les Miserables might be even better as a story. While Hugo was working on it, a lot was happening. He brought out several volumes of poetry, and he was still writing plays and more novels, too. But he believed in this book. He told his publisher that it was his best, and that he wanted more money for it than had ever been paid for a book. The publisher agreed to pay it. Was worth what it made it was worth what he paid, I guess, I should say, what it made for, for Hugo. It was worth that, plus more. Customers reportedly showed up with wheelbarrows to buy the book in bulk and resell it to an eager public. This was a century of turmoil for France as it lurched back and forth from republicanism to other forms of government, and Hugo was a blend of political beliefs that represented his era. He believed in big-picture views and wrote about currents and tides and eras and so on. He could be nostalgic for Napoleon and admire his greatness, though he also believed in a republic and fought to bring it about. The public appreciated Hugo's scope and sweep, but also his devotion to Christian virtues and humanity in general, and the empathy with which he treated his characters. After Napoleon III took over, Hugo had to go into exile, so he went to Jersey in the English Channel for a few years, then to the island of Guernsey. And he didn't have to stay there the whole time. At first, the, the exile was enforced. He was actually prohibited from being in France, but later that was relaxed. But he stayed in Guernsey anyway, a self-imposed exile, as Joyce would be later. Hugo was productive there. For 20 years, he cranked out works, political satires and poems and novels. His daughter died, and he wrote movingly in her memory some beautiful poetry. He wrote metaphysical epics about Satan and God and the problem of evil. And finally... After getting all of these other works out of his system, he returned to Les Miserables and finally completed it. Les Mis tells the story of Jean Valjean, imprisoned for 19 years for stealing a loaf of bread, which he did for his sister's starving child. Prison hardens Valjean, but he finally gets out and softens, becomes the leader of a town and an industrialist employing many people. But he has a stalker the obsessed detective Javert, who wants to bring him down. Les Mis covers a lot of ground. If you only know the musical, you know the highlights and the basic plot, but in the novel, there are many other passages and episodes that cover more history and have deeper insights into the characters and the human condition. One note is that this is not the French Revolution. That's a common misunderstanding by the casual viewer. This is 1789. The street barricades and that whole scene is part of a later revolution, one that took place in the 1830s, brought about due to conditions in Paris and the forthcoming death of the only man in the government who was viewed as showing any mercy to the poor. A student named Marius is in love with a woman named Cosette, who is the daughter of Fantine, a worker that Jean Valjean feels guilty about because of the way she was treated by some co-workers, and he has tried to protect her. Jean Valjean tries to help Fantine and Cosette, even as he is busy escaping pursuit from Javert, and as Paris descends into chaos and revolution. 
Okay. Marius, by the way, is sort of a stand-in for Hugo, who himself had been a young student living in similar squalid conditions as Marius once upon a time. I thought about reading some chapters from Les Mis, give you a taste of the prose, but I've already given you kind of a taste of the prose, and I thought instead I would pull some quotes to give you a flavor of the book and its sentiment, and and Victor Hugo is kind of a psychologist or prophet, you might say, an observer of humanity and a someone who calls for us to all be better. This, I think this will give you a sense of the devotion that the book inspires, why that occurs. Okay, quote, Teach the ignorant as much as you can. Society is culpable in not providing a free education for all, and it must answer for the night which it produces. If the soul is left in darkness, sins will be committed. The guilty one is not he who commits the sin, but he who causes the darkness, end quote. Here's another. You who suffer because you love, love still more. To die of love is to live by it. Here's another. Those who do not weep do not see. What is love? I have met in the streets a very poor young man who was in love. His hat was old, his coat worn, the water passed through his shoes and the stars through his soul. Laughter is sunshine. It chases winter from the human face. To love or have loved, that is enough. Ask nothing further. There is no other pearl to be found in the dark folds of life. And perhaps the best, and maybe the most famous of all, especially, it comes straight from the musical too, they the authors of the musical found this line and immortalized it in song. Here it is. To love another person is to see the face of God. Les Miserables turned Hugo from a famous writer to a national hero. The regime changed and he returned to Paris for his final few decades of life. His days of unbelievable literary and political productivity were behind him. His energies had sagged a bit as he aged, but he was now a symbol of something, of national pride, of hope, of France at its best. He still wrote poetry, but his wife died and he outlived two of his sons, which brought him down. His health started to fail. He had a longtime mistress named Juliet, and she died as well. His work was starting to turn profoundly sad. And finally, after a long life, he died. His body was placed under the Arc de Triomphe, lying in state. 40,000 people spent the night on the streets of Paris, getting ready to observe the casket as it was carried to its final resting place. It is said that 2 million people, I've seen estimates as high as 3 million people, came out to observe the funeral procession. Although Hugo's mother had been a devout Catholic and he had started life that way, Hugo had a long and antagonistic relationship with the Catholic Church. The Church didn't like his works, which Hugo thought was because his works championed the poor and the suffering, which the Church should have cared about more than it did. The Catholic press attacked Les Miserables, and Hugo kept track of these attacks, claiming that there were 740 times they criticized the novel 
in their pages. When uh, Hugo's sons died, Hugo said, no priests and no crucifix. When he himself died, he left some simple instructions. Five sentences. He said, I leave 50,000 francs to the poor. I wish to be buried in their hearse. I refuse orations from all churches. I request a prayer to all souls. I believe in God. End quote. He believed in God, in God and in man, God's humble creature. He believed in man at his finest and man at his most vulnerable, in love and in sorrow, in laughter and in tears. He believed also in art and in living hard and in being compassionate. He believed in his predecessor poets and the people who would one day read his works. He wrote once that in the 20th century, there would be no wars, no scaffold, no hatred, no boundaries, no dogma. All that, he said, would be dead and humans would live. We are still working toward those goals here in the 21st, but we know that Hugo believed in those principles as worthy ones, and he believed in God and poetry as the way to bring them about. And he believed in the capacity of humans to do it. He believed in God, yes, but he also believed in literature, and he believed in us. Okay, there we go. His last note, left two days before he died, said, To love is to act. So let's go out there and go all Victor Hugo on the world, loving it before it melts or blows itself into smithereens. How's that for a bit of sunshine? I've told you before, I like a few clouds in my coffee. Maybe you'll need to help me along, boosting me up, loving your fellow neighbors, and helping out those in need. I will do my best, too. And I'll be back with more literary goodness. It was good spending time with Victor Hugo, and I can't wait to spend some time with Sylvia Plath. That's coming up. And Asia Wevel also coming up. And more romantics like Goethe. Yes, that's still on the list. How about Sigmund Freud? A two-parter for that guy, I think. How could we possibly cover him in just one episode? His legacy alone including his impact on literature, is probably going to take us an hour. Lots of literature left to discuss, and we'll try to sprinkle in some fun episodes as well. Fun eps. Fun eps. Maybe with our old friend Mike Palindrome. That'll be a nice breather. I could use a breather. We're not all born on Mount Blanc in a Roman temple devoted to love. Some of us were born under a bad sign. As I was, unfortunately. The sign had a downward arrow that said, Unlucky Baby, and it was pointing straight at me. I asked my mother once why she didn't just ask to be taken to a different room. I mean, what kind of sign is that, is that to have around in a maternity ward anyway? Why take a chance on what it would mean for me in my life? I might end up a failure, which is basically what happened. So why, Mom? Why stay under that bad sign that said unlucky baby? She just stared at me for a moment and then said, You're lucky in my eyes. 
Thanks, Mom. Not helpful, but thanks. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.